0: Well, if you would, please find your way to the book of Galatians, if you would. Galatians chapter 2. Our text for today is verse 11 through 14. We give it the title, Compromising the True Gospel. And as you find yourself there, please follow along as I read from Galatians 2, verse 11 through 14. The apostle who was moved by the Spirit to write this writes in verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? As we've been emphasizing since we began our study of this epistle, there is only one true gospel. There's only one way to be saved. There's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to be forgiven. The gospel is humanity's only hope of rescue from God's righteous wrath and judgment and only hope of eternal life and eternal joy in the presence of God. One gospel then for all of humanity, both Jew and Gentile. So I remind you here, just in getting our minds in a groove, that Jew and Gentile both are equally lost and unrighteous before conversion. Both Jews and Gentiles are both equally lost before salvation. Romans 3, 9 and 10, Paul writes, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, or Gentiles, ...are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Both Jew and Gentile are the offspring of Adam... ...and therefore sinners by nature. Equally human are Jews and Gentiles. Therefore equally condemned as a part of Adam's fallen race. Romans 5, 12. Therefore just as through one man sin entered into the world... ...and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Chapter 5, verse 18 of Romans, So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, Jew and Gentile, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Romans 3, 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, both Jew and Gentile. Also then, Jew and Gentile are equally justified, equally saved, equally forgiven after conversion. They're both equally condemned before and after conversion. They're both equally justified, equally saved. Romans 3:28 through 30 please. Just listen. <laughs> For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Galatians 3:28-29. and 29, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male or female, for they're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise, both Jew and Gentile. Okay. Galatians 3:26 says it like this, For you are all, and I put in parentheses, both Jews and Gentiles, sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Be you Jew, be you Gentile, you are a son of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Revelation 5.9, glorious picture of heaven And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, now listen, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, Jew and Gentile. So then Jews and Gentiles are equally unrighteous before conversion and equally justified forgiven after conversion. It is through the one gospel, the one true gospel of salvation that that happens. It is then the foremost work of the church to protect the gospel from error. It is the foremost work of the church to protect the gospel from error. Martin Luther said long ago in his battle with the Catholics over this very issue, over 500 years ago, he said the church stands or falls on this doctrine of justification by faith alone. When the true gospel is either lost altogether in complete apostasy or so concealed, so covered under the layers of false teachings as to be essentially lost, the church no longer is the true light on the hill. No longer the beacon of God by which lost sinners can see the way to eternal life. She joins, she being the church, when we apostatize, and lose the purity of the one true gospel, she joins all the other soul-damning institutions of the religious world, these institutions of men that are not of God. Therefore, she becomes an institution of death and not of life. These religions all offer life eternal of some kind, but in reality only add to their already condemnation. There's only one true gospel. It is the noble work of the church to guard its purity. It's, it's for the Jew and the Gentile. And, and it is our work. It is our duty. We've been entrusted with that gospel to protect it and to guard it. Now, to, to lose the purity of the gospel, this is, this is what our Lord indicted the Pharisees for in that they, they, put, they abuse the truth he says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23:15, he says this: "Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves." To follow then, what Jesus is saying, to follow in the Pharisees' steps is to grow closer and closer to hell and not to God. To be a disciple of theirs is to grow in your condemnation. You're heaping on condemnation. To follow a false gospel then is to continue in the condemnation of sin. In fact, it's to add to your condemnation. It is so important to get this right. All the while you're heaping on condemnation as you follow a false gospel, you're thinking that you are right before God. Hence the deception Those people will hear the frightening words of our Lord on the final judgment day that's recorded in Matthew 7, 23. Jesus says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. As Paul has already said back in chapter 1, verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to what we have preached to you, he's to be accursed. When the church loses the gospel of grace, she is no longer of use to God or the world. We become useless. So then, the gospel's purity is foremost. The gospel then needs to be guarded, needs to be protected, it needs to be preached and proclaimed, it needs to be lived. What is the gospel? Simply, I'm just going to use Galatians 2.16. It's one of the key verses of the whole letter to the Galatians. But listen to Galatians 2.16 again. You're going to hear this, well, until October, right? Um, So get used to this. I want this embedded into your mind like a tumbleweed into a fence that just can't be moved, right? Or maybe a little stick tight. You ever see a stick tight when you walk through the woods? It gets stuck to your sock. I want this gospel message like a stick tied in your brain. I don't want it able to come out, okay? Listen to Galatians 2.16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. He says it as, as often as he can in one verse, he says it, that it's by faith and not works. In verse 21 of that same chapter, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If you can be saved by your own effort, then Jesus Christ died for nothing. Okay? So you can see then that the noble work of the church is to protect and guard that which God has entrusted to her, and it's the one true gospel of grace. Okay? The doctrine of works of the law, why works is so so effective, the doctrine of the works of law, of human effort, of human merit, is so persuasive because it appeals to my flesh.? Okay? There is a sense that I feed my sinful pride. I do something to earn my way, and I like that. See, that's my flesh. To earn God's favor over and beyond someone else. Look at me, God. I'm your star pupil type of thing. It is the competitive spirit in a sinful way, you see, that I have worked hard at being righteous and that I'm resting on my achievement. Not on God's. This is the way of salvation for every other religion other than the true gospel of grace. And that's why it has to be guarded because it's a constant assault. Even here today with us, every one of us is tempted in some way to works righteousness. And we must work hard to guard the gospel that we're studying in Galatians to protect it from the influence of works. It is entirely of grace. Entirely of grace. Self-righteousness is related to works righteousness. Self-righteousness is a great and dangerous sin. It is religious pride. The worst of all kinds of pride is religious pride. It's sickening if you think about it. It is as Paul says in Philippians 3 when he says... If anyone puts confidence in the flesh, I far more put confidence in the flesh. And what he means by that when he says put confidence in the flesh, he's talking about trusting your own standing, your own merits, your own achievements, your own ethnicity, your own family connection instead of God's grace. Paul was gloriously and graciously saved out of such a mindset He threw it all overboard, abandoning all his confidence in the flesh. And he says it like this in Philippians 3, 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. He threw it overboard it was actually detrimental it's like having gold on your ship when your ship has a hole in it and it's sinking that gold becomes very less valuable every gallon of water that comes in your boat right and that's what he chucked overboard was his confidence in his flesh in the churches in galatia as we're studying galatians Jewish men who claimed to be followers of Jesus came from Jerusalem teaching a different gospel than Paul's. They were asserting with much zeal and passion that faith alone in Christ alone was not enough to justify. But you must keep the law of Moses. Paul's gospel of grace, they would say, is incomplete. You must finish, in essence, what Jesus started with your own works, your own doings. If you believe you are justified by faith alone and live with such confidence that you say with conviction that you are forgiven of all your sins and are actually resting in God's promise of receiving you into heaven solely on His grace, the Council of Trent of the Catholic Church would call you presumptuous, would call you arrogant, presuming on God's mercy. They, in fact, would say, let him be anathema. But the thing is, that's exactly what the gospel says. Is your confidence today that you will be received in heaven is because of the work of Jesus Christ solely and completely? Or is it somewhere in the back of your mind you must add to that to give a little assurance to yourself? Is your assurance resting in the sole work of Jesus Christ on the cross that he made full payment on your behalf Proven by the empty tomb, the resurrection. Is that what you're resting in? If that's what you are resting in, apart from anything you will ever do, then you have confidence and conviction that my next missed breath, I will be in the presence of Jesus Christ. Solely on his merit. Solely on his righteousness. That's the gospel of grace, you see. And we will die defending that. There's there's not a lot worth dying for, but that's one of them. That's one of them right there. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it like this. You know this verse, of course. For by grace you have been saved through all of your works. No, through faith. In that not of yourselves, me kindred, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may what? Boast. You see, works is connected to boasting. And don't we love to boast? We love to boast. And I love to boast about me more than anybody I've ever met because I love me more than anybody I've ever met. That's my problem, you see. That's my problem. And you know that because that's your problem too, you see. And that's why works righteousness is so effective because we like to boast. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Ain't I righteous? (laughs) You see? Ain't I something? <laughs> yeah, you're something, all right. <laughs> right? <laughs> so then, again, I remind us, please. It is the noble work of the church of God to fight for the purity of the gospel. It is a noble work. Compromise demands confrontation. Compromise of the gospel demands confrontation because that's how you're gonna guard and protect it and so our text today is about that the Apostle Paul continues to defend his ministry his gospel against the assault of false brethren who've come into the church with their Jewish legalism Paul continues to show his readers and us that the gospel he preached to them came to him by special divine revelation that's chapter 1 verse 12 and that he was independent of all the other apostles who were in Jerusalem. But after several years, we learned from the previous passages that Paul went to Jerusalem, preached his gospel to the pillars, Peter and John and James, so that they would affirm his gospel, and they listened to his gospel and said, Yes, your gospel is the same as our gospel. And Paul has said, It was 14 years from the time I was saved to the time I went and preached my gospel to Peter. 14 years. He received the gospel by divine revelation, independent of those other apostles. And he does this so that the readers would have confidence that the gospel that Paul brought to them is the true gospel. Because there's only one gospel. So they heard his message, and they said to him, after giving the right hand of fellowship to Paul, You go to the Gentiles, Peter goes to the Jews. One gospel for the Jews and the Gentiles. OK? All right. Now, all is well. They departed, right hand of fellowship. Not a problem. Not a problem. All's well. But our text, which is verse 11 through 14 of chapter two, reveals to us that there is a problem. Now isn't it amazing, by first glance of verses 11 through 14, even the apostles? the supposed pillars of the church are not infallible in their practice. Only Christ is infallible. His apostles are sinners saved by grace. Now think about this. Someone who's as sinful as Tone, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could pen an infallible, inerrant epistle. And write that down and close it with amen. And then walk over here and write something and be totally polluted. Not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The man is not inspired. The man is not somebody who's, who's uh, like Christ, Perfect. He's moved upon by the Spirit, and what he writes and what he says, if it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is divinely inspired, therefore, divinely perfect and infallible. But not everything Paul says, not everything Peter says, obviously, was righteous. Okay? So, isn't it amazing at first glance that even Peter, even Barnabas, can do something really stupid? It's amazing. I'm in good company. Right? I'm sorry to say, I'm in good company, right? Because I'm more like Peter than I am like Jesus. Let's just put it that way, right? But praise God for Paul. Praise God for Paul. These men, these, 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 these pillars, supposedly, um, can be weak and can be sinful. Even the so-called great ones are not perfectly righteous in practice and they need to be corrected, it's amazing. So when we look at our text, verse 11, we're gonna see the confrontation. In verses 12 through 14, we'll see the compromise. If you look at verse 11, please. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now I just gotta make some mention here, Cephas is Peter, of course. But notice where he came to, he came to Antioch. What is Antioch? Antioch is a city, it's the capital city at the time of what is modern-day turkey southwest turkey syria it's it's the third largest city in the roman empire at the time they say the population was exceeding a half a million people in this city had a large contingency of jewish people it was mainly a gentile city though it's several days ride north of jerusalem so it's out beyond the 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 jewish state if you will the jewish uh, or the gospel, came to this place as a result of the persecution that was connected with the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Okay? As a result of that persecution, the gospel spread into the regions north of Jerusalem. It was here that God opened the eyes of many Gentiles to see the glories of Christ through the gospel. He converted many of them and established a church which consisted of both Jews and Gentiles in Antioch. And when this news reached the mother church in Jerusalem, and all this is according to Acts, when they heard that God was saving Gentiles in the north part, they sent Barnabas... A trusted disciple to examine and to encourage them in the faith, to teach them. Barnabas saw what was going on, praised God, eventually went to Tarsus and got Paul and brought him to Antioch. And those two ministered for several years in Antioch, building up the church there. In Antioch, if you remember, it's the first place that disciples were called Christians in Antioch. Probably a a term of derision at the time. But it became something to, uh, like a badge. Little Christ is what it meant, little Christ. Hmm. In Acts 13, both Paul and Barnabas who were ministering there in that church, the Holy Spirit said, set them apart and they were sent out on Paul's so-called first missionary journey in acts 13 from this city in antioch so then antioch basically became the hub uh, a church for the gentile missions the jerusalem church was the mother church as the years went on it started to lose influence and persecution came and now that kind of transferred to antioch and that's where paul was and now from antioch he went on his missionary journeys and went out through the mediterranean so this is where this is taking place in galatians 2 11. It's also interesting to see that if you look at an old map of this here, it is at a crossroads between the Mediterranean and Persia. So it's on a trade route. So obviously, like any other popular trade route, you have the whole world coming and going, a lot of commerce. So it's a metropolitan city lots of different cultures, lots of different peoples. What a perfect place to have a church and the gospel to influence. So then, it's sort of a melting pot. Cephas, it says in verse 11, Peter came to this place, Antioch. Now, nowhere in the New Testament does it say why Peter came here, but we'll just assume that upon hearing all the commotion that was going on of God's grace and Gentiles being converted, a lot going on, he wanted to go see that for himself. Exciting times, so he goes there and he sees how the gospel's powerfully going forth, converting these once idolatrous pagans into followers and worshipers of the Messiah. I mean, who wouldn't want to see that? If you heard across the river over there in Orangeville, can anything good happen in Orangeville? I don't know. But if, <laughs> if, if that happened over there and you heard of, of mass conversions and there was, there was revival going on, would you stay over here and just ignore it or would you go over there and want to see it? I want to go see it. If it's a true work of the Spirit of God, I mean, praise God. So Peter's here in Antioch seeing all this stuff. What he is seeing when he comes there is Jews and Gentiles worshiping together so he sees an incredible unity of the body. In in this body in Antioch, you have Jews and Gentiles with no issues and no problems worshiping the Jewish Messiah. Side by side as brother and sister. Amazing stuff. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 that Christ made us into one new man. Okay? One new man in Christ Jesus. No longer classified the new covenant says Jew and Gentile, but we're one in Jesus Christ, says Galatians 3.28. But this should have been a joyous occasion. But notice in verse 11 Paul's action. He says in verse 11, I opposed him to his face. Here's the confrontation. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. The word oppose, it is to stand against. It is to set oneself against another. It is to resist. It is to oppose. It's a very strong word. And notice here it says in verse 11, I opposed him. I stood against him to his face to his face, not his back. Right? He didn't backstab him. He didn't go around to other people and tell them how miserable this is. He went to him right there. He looked him right in the eye and opposed him to his face, he did. The Pope, he did. Well, he's not the Pope. That's what the Catholics say. Um, <laughs> he opposed Peter to his face. No whispering, no complaining, no to others in secret, but head on. The word to oppose then, face to face, is an idea to impede one's route. It's to get in his way, to stop progress. Now why is Peter, or Paul doing this? Is Paul, in verse 11, is he jealous that Peter showed up? He's going to steal all the glory and all the rewards from all the, the revival that's going on? Is Paul a petty tyrant? Look at what it says there. He says, I opposed him to his face. I got in his way because he stood condemned. No, he's not jealous of him. He's probably ashamed of him, frankly. He says he stood condemned. The, the tense of the verb here, this is the idea is that that Peter was in a state of condemnation. In other words, he, he was, because of what he had done, he was under condemnation. Now, it's not the condemnation that the, the unconverted sinner's under, that he's going to be under the final judgment of God. But what it does mean is that he is guilty of a sinful act. He's self-condemned, the word can mean. He was, he was committing sin and needed to be resisted because of what it was. It's seriousness and impact on the whole body of Christ. Not everybody's sin affects the body in the same way. But Peter's a leader. Major influence over the body. right? And so Paul is willing to stand in his face, to stand on his toes and look him in the eye. Paul is willing to do so because Peter's actions needed to be stopped in their tracks. this this tells us how serious it is so then we back up as we said earlier compromise of the true gospel demands confrontation it has to be stopped compromising the gospel not everything demands this but the one true gospel being compromised does okay not many people are willing to do that and in this day and age it's looked upon as being judgmental oh you're being judgmental you know how, how, how can you get in the face of that guy when he says, you know, that uh, the gospel's incomplete? And he's just, you know, trying to be righteous himself. And you, you can work harder and be right before God. And then I, and someone comes and says, no, that, that's heresy. And then you'll be accused of being judgmental. Especially in this day and age. That's not very loving, right? We just should be more inclusive, <laughs> right? open Open-headed, right? Open-headed means you'll fall for everything, right? There's one true gospel that demands the protection. And so Paul is willing to even get in the face of Peter. That's amazing, actually. It really is. That's just amazing. Paul's willing to do so because Peter's actions needed to be stopped. Why is that so? It is to protect the body from the influence, and it's to guard the purity of the gospel. It's to protect the body by also guarding the purity of the gospel. That's why Paul is willing to do so. But just what is the issue that moves Paul and gives him the conviction and boldness to stand up to Peter? Well, look at verse 12, and you begin to see the compromise here in verse 12. He says in verse 12, it says, Prior... To, to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Interesting. We'll start with this. The people that were coming in verse 12, men from James. This is James from verse 9, a couple verses earlier there. You see Cephas, James and Cephas and John, the so-called pillars of the Jerusalem church. If you went back to chapter 1, verse 19, he says this, but I did not see any other of the Apostles except James the Lord's brother so here in verse 12 men from James this is most likely the Lord's half-brother the Apostle James who who was converted post-resurrection according to first Corinthians okay he didn't even believe in Jesus Christ before he was crucified before he was resurrected so his half-brother wasn't converted until post-resurrection He's clearly shown, James is, to be the leader of the Jerusalem church. Peter is given that, that title often and is kind of set apart as the, the leader of the Jerusalem church. But when you read the book of Acts and even comment here in, in Galatians, it's James who is seen as the head of the church in Jerusalem, not Peter. Right? Peter succumbs to James. The, Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, they don't go to Peter. They go to James and who gives the report who gives the conclusion James does so if you want a pope to put in Jerusalem put James there not Peter right I don't, I wouldn't put any of them there but if you're going to put one there put the guy that Acts puts in there right Luke says that James is the leader um, certain men then back to 12 prior to the coming of certain men from James certain men from James he either sent them himself to 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 be sure the mosaic law was being followed or second these men just came here on their own from the church in Jerusalem over which James was the head of in the sense of being pastor therefore these are zealots from Moses now how would you answer that i think you would go to acts 15 verses 23 and 24 and i think you get the answer you can just listen to this listen to, this is acts 15 23 and 24, and this is after Galatians 2, okay? But listen to what it says. And they sent this letter. This is, this is James writing. They sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brother who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. James is writing this. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. Okay, So I think from that we can say these guys came from the church where James was, and they maybe said we're coming from James to give a little validity and more authority to them, and they came to Galatians with this false gospel. Okay, So I guess to say that is not to put too much onto James in a negative light. All right, verse 12. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, notice what it says, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Now this is getting to the issue at hand here. He used to share meals with them. He used to enjoy Christian fellowship with Gentiles. This can be from meals in everyday life that you share in home. It could also include the, the, the love feast meals. It's probably all of above. And so before these men came from Jerusalem, Peter, the Jew, had no problem sitting at your table eating food with you in your house, Christian fellowship, no issues whatsoever. No issue whatsoever. But look at what it says in 12. He used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, these these men from James, which is to say from Jerusalem, he, Peter, began to withdraw and hold himself aloof. Huh. Now the way this is, to withdraw and to hold aloof means this idea of shrinking back. So he used to have no problem being here, and now he's shrinking back. And the second word that's used there is in verse uh, 12, is that he was holding himself aloof. This is the idea of separating from in order to avoid contact. So he shrunk, but the tense of the verb is this. He did it gradually. He did it gradually. He kind of like was so ashamed and he he probably just kind of did this, you know, and ended up away from the Gentiles over here with the Jews. Okay. Very interesting. So he's in the process of separating from them. Now, this is fascinating. Of all people to do this, right, for all people to act like this, Peter's the last one I thought would be doing this because he was shown something back in Acts 10. And I think I would like to take you there because there's quite a bit of stuff I want you to just read. So if you would turn to Acts chapter 10, I want to show you what the Lord showed Peter and why what he's doing in Galatians 2 is so bizarre because he knows better. He knows better. So, and I want to, I'm going to pick and choose and kind of ricochet across here like a flat rock across the river. Okay. So I hope you don't mind. In Acts 10, I should like to pick it up in verse 9. I want to read through 16. Now, this is Cornelius, the first Gentile conversion in Acts 10. We get to verse 9, please. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. Verse 11, he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there with it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. Thirteen, a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Fourteen, but Peter said, By no means, Lord. Can you imagine telling the Lord no? Um, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything. What does your text say? Unholy and unclean. Right? So the animals in the sheets that's coming down is considered unholy and unclean. Why? Who declared that? God did in the law, Levitical law. These critters are unclean and unholy. They're not fit for Jewish consumption. Okay? Declared by the Lord. So then, 15, again a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, notice, no longer consider unholy. It was once unholy, but this says God has cleansed it, therefore it's no longer unholy. Fascinating. 16, this happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now skipping down just for the sake of time and text, down to verse 28, please. Look at what he says here. Peter now is going to get closer to Cornelius' house, and it says in verse 28, And he said to them, he's about to enter into Cornelius' house. Verse 28, You yourselves know how unlawful. It is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner, Gentile, or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unclean or unholy or unclean. Is that not incredible? The sheep that's coming down out of heaven that has the animals in there, that Levitical law said you cannot eat, it's unholy, unclean. In the vision, God says to Peter that those critters that are coming down in the sheet have been cleansed by God. They are no longer unholy. Peter says here that that the animals in the sheet are representative of the Gentiles. Because he says in 28, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. This is a major change from the old covenant to the new covenant. In the Old Covenant, the dietary laws had nothing to do with diet. God did not care about their cholesterol, right? Because if it did, now you're saying he doesn't care, right? So let's get over that. The dietary law had nothing to do with your health. It had everything to do with Jewish separation from Gentiles. You know why? Because when you sit down with a meal with somebody, you are fellowshipping. You are communing together. You are sharing life together when you have a meal. And this dietary law in the Old Covenant kept the Jews from doing that with the Gentiles. Because God wanted his people separate from the Gentiles, from the nations around them. But now here in the New Covenant, God shows Peter that's no longer the way it is. God now has, made, has removed those restrictions now, instead of putting up barriers that keep the Gentiles out, now you're supposed to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. Amen? That's why we're here, unless you're Jewish. Right? I'm not Jewish, so I'll just pick on me. Right? That's why I'm here. Somebody decided to, to not follow the, the dietary restrictions <laughs> right? and preach Christ to the Gentiles. Praise God. Now, go to 1044, please. I commend the whole chapter 10 and 11 to you, but on your own. <laughs> Look at 44, please. 1044. While Peter was still speaking these words, the words, the previous passage is the gospel. He's preaching the gospel to the, to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the gospel, notice what happened in 44. The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. The Holy Spirit's God. (laughs) 45. All the circumcised believers, those are Jews, who came with Peter were amazed. Notice why. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on who? The Gentiles also. Well, who decides that? That's God. God is showing his acceptance of the Gentiles that the vision of the sheets was proving to Peter. They're no longer considered off balanced grounds. Now go after them. So Peter preaches the gospel, the Holy Spirit falls upon them who are hearing, who are Gentiles, verse 46, please, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues exalting God, these Gentiles were, and then Peter answered, 47, surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit. Notice, just as we, who's the we, Jews, can he 48, he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to stay on for a few days. That's fascinating. First Gentile conversion post resurrection, showing the Spirit's acceptance, if you will, of Gentiles through the gospel. Okay, look at chapter. 11, you be, now the Jews take issue with what Peter did, which is fascinating. They're not moved and, and, and so taken up with joy that God would save Gentiles. They're ticked off that Peter went to eat with Gentiles. How dare you do that? He's like a good old Baptist who's legalistic, you know. He's like a legalistic Baptist. Yeah, Right. We don't want to be legalistic anything, (laughs) right? 11.1, look at what it says. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea, that's the Jewish obviously, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Look at verse 2. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, Jews, took issue with him. And now what's their problem? Look at verse 3. Saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. How dare you? <laughs> I bet if they had a rock, they'd stone them. Verse 4. And Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them an orderly sequence. And then from verse 5 all the way to the, verse 18, he begins to explain what had happened in the previous chapter. Okay, Now, pick it up in 11.16 with me, please. Look at verse 16, just for the sake of time here. And I remembered... When the Holy Spirit fell upon them, 15 verse 16, And I remembered the word of the Lord before the crucifixion, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, Therefore, if God gave to them, Gentiles, the same gift as he gave to us Jews, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Verse 18, he says, When they heard this, the Jews, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted, that's a work of grace, to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. That's good stuff. That's really good stuff, isn't it? Now, please, go back to Galatians. Of all people... To act so stupid. <laughs> I guess it shouldn't surprise me that Peter's doing this. But we just read what Peter experienced. And this very same Peter is found in Galatians 2 to withdraw and hold himself aloof from the Gentiles. It's like he has amnesia, right? Parkinson's or whatever that other thing is that I think I have. What do you call it? That thing, yeah. <laughs> Right? I think Peter has Alzheimer's, right? It's amazing. He begins to avoid the Gentiles as though what we just read had never happened. Or he certainly forgot about it. As though we're still in the old covenant. It's to treat the Gentiles as though they are still sinners outside the covenant of God. After he spent however many days or weeks fellowshipping with them with no problem, Right? After he saw the vision in Acts 10 and saw the Spirit actually move upon the non-Jews in his very presence to then act like this, man. Now, why is he doing this? Did God make a mistake back in Acts 10? Perhaps God said, you know what? I got a little hasty, got ahead of myself. So he gave Peter another vision to correct what he did in Acts 10. Maybe that's what it was. Is that what it was? Did did Peter have theological grounds for this? I don't think so. Look at the end of verse 12. Why did he do this? Paul says, you're a coward, Peter. You're a coward. Because look what it says. Fearing the party of the circumcision. That's why Peter did that. Fearing the party of the circumcision? Are you kidding? In Acts 11, he stood before the circumcision and explained what happened in Acts 10. And now here in Antioch, Jews show up and he, out of fear for the Jewish people from Jerusalem, began to hold himself aloof. He, he, he became the hypocrite. Now think about this before we get too hard on Peter. Again, we're more like Peter than we are like Jesus. <laughs> right. The fear of man is a snare, is it not? The fear of man is a great burden. The fear of man most often leads to all kinds of sinful actions. At least it does in my life. And here it leads to compromising the one true gospel. Man. Why would Peter give such care to these men? Why would he care what these men thought? I have no idea. You can put whatever you want in the blank, and it might be true, and it might be all of above. Maybe he was afraid that Jews wouldn't think he was a pillar or something back in Jerusalem. Maybe I'm sure they didn't threaten his life, because maybe they did. But why would he care, right? Why do we care what anybody says? You know what's hard is when you study the Bible, And you come to a conclusion of a passage that's contrary to your heroes, like Calvin and Luther and MacArthur and Lloyd-Jones, I must confess, inside I go, oh, I must study that again (laughs) because I don't want to be contrary to my heroes, you know. But at the end of the day, Lord willing, you land on the conviction of your heart of what does the words. say. Peter should have had the conviction of that vision and the Holy Spirit falling upon the Gentiles. But yet he feared these men more than he feared God at this time. And he caved, he capitulated, he compromised the one true gospel. My goodness, this isn't just eschatology, which I think is important, but not everybody does. They can be wrong, though. <laughs> um, right? Think of this. How persuasive must these men be to move Peter away from the way that God showed him? Man. So don't be too self-confident that you're unmovable in your beliefs. Don't be that because you're one step away from an elevator shaft of failure. right? This should humble us greatly This scares me to death, actually. Peter walked with Christ. Peter touched him like John, heard his voice, saw him do all kinds of things, saw him crucified, saw him buried and resurrected. Well, maybe he didn't see him buried, he's off fishing, but he saw him resurrected. He was restored in John 21. And yet, and then he saw the vision of Acts 10 and 11. And yet he can do this. By mere men showing up and confronting him, you're not a good Jew. You're failing Moses, Mark. Knock it off. I'll tell your dad back in Jerusalem and he won't send any more money for your college, you know. Knock it off. (laughs) Or whatever. Whatever. This is just amazing. Fearing the party of the circumcision, the end of twelve, that's to be a coward. Now look at verse 13. He moves on and he says in 13, the rest of the Jews, so think of this, in this body that's mixed with Gentiles and Jews, the the rest of the Jews in 13 joined him in what? In hypocrisy. Wow. Hypocrisy. That's interesting. What does that word mean in the original? It means to play the part it means to wear the mask and to speak from under the mask, like a, like a Greek actor. Okay? It, it, it is to pretend to be something that you're actually not. That's to be the hypocrite. And this says here in 13 that to follow in Peter's legalism, if you will, they joined in 13 in hypocrisy. In playing the part, this with, think of this now. This withdrawal is not what actually is not what Peter actually believes, but because of fear, he's willing to pretend to be like these Jews that come from James. He's playing the mask. He's playing the part of the Judaizers. He's willing to wear the mask because of fear. His actions. They compromise the gospel of grace. And yes, indeed, Paul is right that he stands, like at the end of verse 11, self-condemned. By so doing, Peter, by so doing what he's doing here, he is promoting their false gospel, their false views. By watching Peter here, you would say that justification is by faith plus works of the law, not faith alone. By his actions, you would say, wow, the gospel isn't pure grace. It's of works. But that's not true. So Paul stood in his way and opposed him to his face. Peter's acting as though Gentiles are in sin and therefore cannot be in fellowship. Amazing. But why is this so serious? Well, look at 13 again and see that a little leaven leavens the whole lump for sure. This persuasion that they're under is not from God, I'll tell you that. His sin, Peter's, quickly affects others. And again, leadership has privileges, leadership has responsibilities, leadership has great great responsibility. Because here, Peter, who's so-called a pillar in the Gospels, has such great influence over the church that his sin affects others. Not only the Jews, the rest of the Jews in 13, but look at verse 13. Who else is included in this? Barnabas. Are you kidding? Peter, I might be, yeah, okay, I understand Peter, right? But Barnabas? Barnabas? Barnabas is the one who went and got Paul and brought him to the apostles and says, hey, hey, don't be afraid of him. He's all right. He's, a, he's a one of us. He's the one who went and got him for Antioch ministry. The son of encouragement. Barnabas. He's a gospelizer. He's not a heretic. But look at what it says. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, playing the part of the actor, with the result that even Barnabas... Even even the phraseology, I think Paul's like, even I can't believe this. (laughs) I'm sure Paul said, Peter, yeah, I can understand. But Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. I think this is fascinating, the language that he uses here. Think of this. His defection, that is Barnabas' defection from the true gospel is a result of... The hypocrisy of Peter and the the rest of the Jews. So you have you have the persuasion of the gifted. I say gifted because they're silver-tongued devils, right? And numbers, right? As the numbers grow, Barnabas is somehow influenced by this. If Paul doesn't act here, the church is fractured. Unity is fractured, and the gospel's polluted. You see, the, the 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 legalistic perversion doesn't save anyone. This goes back to chapter 1. Let him be anathema. Let him be damned. Let him go to hell if he preaches another gospel. Okay? Now notice that even Barnabas was impacted. His defection is very humbling. It's just so humbling. Think of this. Most of us are at least as susceptible as these men. <laughs> right? Most of us are, are at least as susceptible as these. And most are probably more. And if these men were influenced to abandon the gospel of grace, let us take heed that we don't do the same. Now, how persuasive and powerful are these false brethren that moved both Peter and Barnabas into legalism? Man, in verse 13, notice the the verb connected to Barnabas. It says there in verse 13 that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Now, get this. This is fascinating. Carried away has the idea to go together with. It's like arm in arm. To go together with. It's to be led astray with others. And the idea is more than just joining in the act, but it's actually being swept away in it. It's actually being like caught up in flood water. So the hypocrisy. So Barnabas, I think, is according to how this is phrased, He's not pretending and playing the part. He's actually swept up by the hypocrisy. Actually swayed by this teaching. Wow. He's persuaded by his teaching. And one commentator said, he's knocked off balance. He's, He's staggering. He's knocked off the beam of the gospel. Barnabas, right? Wow. Now, interesting as we get here to verse 14, when it says, when I saw that they were not straightforward, my thought is, was, was Paul off somewhere? He must have been off somewhere. Ministry, right? A couple of weeks, a month, I don't know. And this was going on when he's off serving the Lord in gospel ministry. He comes back to the home church in Antioch and verse 14 says, and then I saw this. This is what I saw. Imagine how stunned he was. In verse 14, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Wow. Here's the issue. The truth of the gospel. Justification by grace alone through faith alone apart from the works of the law. They were not walking in a straight line to that end. They were not walking under the influence of the true gospel. They were walking according to the influence of the law of Moses and that knocked them off the straight course of the gospel. Peter, Barnabas, and the rest of the Jews. Okay? Now... He goes on to say they were being so influenced by the law of Moses that it knocked him off the beam. And notice where he goes, the indictment in the second half of verse 14. Look at what he says here. He says, I said to Cephas, Peter, in the presence of all, again, it's public because it demands it and because it's a public sin. In the presence of all, if you being a Jew live, and I'll add life, like the gentiles and not like the jews so you see what he's saying peter since you're since you are choosing to live like you are a non-jew which means out from under mosaic restrictions and not like the jews how is it second half that you compel or force the gentiles to live like they're jewish He says, You don't even live like you're Jewish. And you're Jewish. How is it that you're trying to force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? You see? Why is it you want them to come under Mosaic restrictions and dietary laws and ceremonial laws? Why do you do that? You don't even do that. And you're a Jew. Right? So this is the indictment. This is his hypocrisy. He goes straight to the source, he doesn't go to the Judaizers. He goes to Peter, and right? And think of this, if he would have stood his ground, that is Peter, if he would have not feared man, if he would have feared God instead, this never would have happened. But isn't it the grace of God that he allows this to happen to emphasize the purity of the gospel, right? This is really really the grace of God, not only in the lives of these people, but now in scripture for every subsequent generation they read how the gospel's to be protected and guarded and how you don't follow men you follow Christ Jesus because men are weak. Don't compromise the gospel. If you do, it demands confrontation, you see. And this is what we learn here. So this is really cool. Then let's let's just think of this as we close this down. Before these men came to Antioch, these Jews Peter enjoyed living free from all the Mosaic restrictions because he lived like a Gentile. He was very comfortable to live with the Gentiles, and Paul says, even as a Gentile. But here they are, by their actions, trying to force the Gentile believers, Gentile Christians, to become Jewish in their practice. There's, this, this, there's the same kind of um, assemblies and fellowships today. There's, there's groups that are very, we'll call them messianic, that want to make you a Gentile, come under mosaic restrictions and make you Jewish, like a proselyte. There's Hebrew roots, which is a, a group that's, that wants to force Jewish mosaic legalism on Christians so, so to live, just like what's going on here. So there's nothing new under the sun. It's still around. My point is this. The gospel that Paul preached, the gospel of grace, the gospel of grace alone by faith alone in Christ alone is the old, old story. It has not changed. You must believe that and you must guard it and live it. Do not let anybody with any other ideas come and pollute the gospel of grace. If anybody comes to you and says, yeah, that's good, but you must, don't listen. Do not listen. It's not but anything. It's Christ alone. That's why the Reformation added the word alone so emphatically. Alone, alone, alone. If you add to it, you have a damning gospel and not true. You're not to become Jewish, you're to become Christian. Right? Far as salvation. If you want to follow certain legalistic dietary laws, Romans 14 tells you how to do that. But if you're doing that in order to be saved and right before God, and you're going to force that on other people, you're wrong. You're wrong. It's all of grace. Now think of this: Paul then is the great example of when and how to confront when the gospel's being compromised. He is willing to do so out of love for his master and for his people. The glory of Christ and the joy of people is at stake. It is worth defending, beloved. It is worth defending. I want to finish with Galatians five one four. Just listen to this. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision or any other legalistic thing, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. That ain't good. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Since this is so, you must be willing to guard and to confront any compromise of the true gospel of grace so that as Galatians 2 5 says, The truth, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it, so let's pray. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We ask, thank you for the Apostle Paul and how you used him so mightily. We thank you, Father, for your scripture. Help us to be faithful. To guard, defend, to keep, to preach the true gospel of grace. Help us, Father, to maintain its purity. We'll give you the glory for you are worthy in Jesus' name. Amen.